Spring turkey season is upon us, and don't be caught out in the woods without having Onyx Hunt on your phone. One feature Onyx has that is often overlooked for turkey hunting is their recent imagery filter with their elite memberships. This imagery is updated week to week, and it comes in extremely handy, especially when you're trying to find these gobble zones where these turkeys will go out in a high spot on a fresh clear cut and strut around all day long. Actually, I was just looking at on Onyx where, where the timber company just came into Andrew's club and did a very small clear cut along this creek, and I can see the high spots on the topographical map, but also I can see exactly where they mulch, and those are going to be hot spots for finding gobblers, especially mid-morning after they get off their hens, getting up on these little high spots in this fresh, small clear cut along the creek and strutting and gobbling all day long. If you want to give Onyx a try, you can actually download it for free, try it for seven days, and if you decide to purchase, you can use the promo code SOUTHERN and save on your premium and elite memberships. So go into this turkey season, know where you stand with Onyx. Well, guys, we have some exciting news for you from Vortex about their brand new eyewear, their Banshee and Jackal sunglasses. Me and Andrew have had these for a few weeks now, right before the release, and we've been extremely impressed. They're awesome glasses, guys. And listen, if you're needing some new sunglasses, not only do they have the VIP warranty, but they're tough as crap, guys. Uh, Scratch-resistant eyewear, uh, it's extremely important. And also, they have safety features as well. So when you're out shooting at the range, again, these are rated glasses, so you are going to be more than protected when you're at the range. But they also look fantastic when you're out around town. So right now, Vortex has some special pricing on their website, which is vortexoptics.com for the new eyewear. But also, if you use the code SOUTHERN20, you get to save even more on this special pricing for right now at vortexoptics.com. Again, check out the new eyewear from vortexoptics.com and use the promo code SOUTHERN20 to save on their brand new eyewear. If you live in the Gulf Coast region, you need to find yourself at the EcoWild Expo May 10th through the 12th in Mobile. It is the premier outdoor expo for the Gulf Coast region, and we're going to be there. We're going to have a booth. We're super excited about it. Can't wait to meet you guys that live down there. We absolutely love the Gulf Coast region, so to be a part of this show, we're super excited about. We're going to have past podcast guests there at our booth for you to talk to, guys who are relevant for your area, who you can talk to, you can pick their brain, you can joke with them, laugh with them, tell them your story, whatever you want to do. It's going to be a awesome time. We're already working on some past podcast guests, but hey, if you live in this area and you have a suggestion for someone you want to see at that show, write in and we'll see if we can get them. There's going to be all kinds of exhibitors at the show that are focused on hunting, fishing, conservation, and recreation. There's going to be activities for the whole family there. They got axe throwing, archery. They're going to have our podcast booth. And then for the kids, they got touch tanks, a honeybee exhibition, a raptor show, kids fishing tank, BB gun range, and a butterfly house. So you're going to love it. Your kids are going to love it. It's going to be an awesome time. So head on over to ecowildexpo.com to get more information on the show and to go ahead and grab your tickets. And hey, mark it on your calendar, May 10th through the 12th. Be there. We want to see you and we're excited to talk to you. So we'll see you at the EcoWild Expo this May 10th through the 12th at the Mobile Convention Center in Mobile, Alabama. guys welcome to the third part of our western series today we are covering mule deer in this episode and we got a great guest with us mr damon bungard from orion coolers and i think uh, jackson kayak is that correct damon correct i'm the product manager for jackson kayak and launched in and brand manager of orion coolers yes. awesome yeah make some high quality coolers i've, I've seen y'all stuff all over uh, 
Randy Newberg's podcast on a show and everything, and I haven't had a chance to mess with an Orion cooler yet, but I'm definitely intrigued by him because I'm in the market for a nicer cooler than my crappy $40 igloo. <laughs> <laughs> well, you'll need them for a good mule deer hunt drive. There you go. You're right about that. You're exactly right. Well, Jacob, how are you doing today? Doing great. Uh, once again, uh, everyone, we are in Nashville, or me and Andrew are. Uh, Damon, actually, where are you calling in from today? I live uh, down near Fall Creek Falls State Park in Tennessee. So I'm, um, uh, our factory is in Sparta, Tennessee, which is a little bit south of Cookville. I'm about 40 minutes southeast of there. So about an hour and a half north of Chattanooga. Okay, perfect. Well, Damon, for anyone that kind of doesn't really know about you, if they haven't listened to, you know, either, uh, you know, Randy Newberg's podcast where he's had you on and then also doesn't really know about you when it comes to Orion, uh, Cougars or anything, you know, give us a little bit of background about you, uh, maybe a little bit of your hunting background and also, you know, what kind of interests you when it comes to mule deer hunting, which is our topic for today. Sure. Um, so I, uh, I grew up as an army brat, uh, kind of living all over the world, um, my father uh, graduated high school in Texas, when he, and he retired there, and I went to school, had a scholarship at Clemson in South Carolina, um, and then moved from there to Vermont um, before coming back down here to, for, to work full-time for, for Jackson. Um, I've kind of been outdoors my whole life, uh, hunting and fishing, um, very active, still on fly fishing and traveling for that, um, filming and doing different things uh and then hunting has just always been a part of my life um i've just always been putting meat in the freezer uh whether it's you know like a lot of people squirrels as kids and then you get older and start you know deer and hog hunting for whitetail and then you know now caribou moose bear i just i got a bear in the fridge right now i gotta cut it start cutting up from quebec last week um that's all my weekend chores to do just put him in the freezer um, so hunting is just, it's just part of my life. Uh, luckily I, part of our career, I, you know, I maybe make products for the outdoors, whether it's our, our fishing kayaks. Um, I do hunt from kayaks as well. Uh, and then on the cooler side, uh, you know, when we decided to launch our own line of premium coolers, it was just, you know, what can we do to help get your meat home and how can we make something that's more than just a plastic box? So, um, Thanks for having me on. Yeah, I'm happy to talk and share. I write a lot um, for different outlets. I've written stories for Sitka on the Bite blog. I write for Orvis. I write for our website. Um, Randy and I, like you said, we've done a few different podcasts. Um, big supporter of public land hunting. Uh, we have uh, videos up on YouTube uh, under the Ryan Chronicles or on the Ryan Coolers channel, all public land hunting. Uh, we just filmed this one in Quebec. That was also even public land. Um, so it was with an outfitter up there hunting bear, but it was public land. You could go to that on your own if you were so inclined. So yeah, that's kind of the background. Uh, feel free to reach out. People can look me up uh, Facebook. You can look me up on YouTube, Damon Bungard, and uh, happy to help any way I can. Yeah, man. I was actually about to ask you about that, uh, the Orion Chronicles and everything that you're doing. Y- y'all have some really high-quality stuff out there on YouTube. Uh, I like I've when I met you at the Total Archery Challenge, I talked to you a little bit about your film uh, where you're hunting backcountry whitetails in Tennessee. I love that, yeah. man. And y'all got a whole bunch of other stuff on the uh, Orion Coolers page. Uh, yeah. I, I saw that traditional, like, left-wing um, traditional archery 
Mm-hmm. I think that's what it was called. That was a great yeah, one. Yeah, we did a, a traditional film, Left Wing. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. That, man. that was the most recent one that's out. Uh, the the first one was the Orion Chronicles, and that was it was on the Sportsman's Channel, and then now it's on YouTube. Um, and uh, that was yeah, a, a multi-day public land backpack muzzleloader hunt from the ground, um, rattling in deer, which is totally a different style. Very challenging to do with a cameraman. Um, yeah. And the coolest thing about that was the cameraman who filmed it. It's fun named Steve Fisher. He's one of the best whitewater kayakers in the world. Never been on a hunt. Um, <laughs> and I could probably never repeat that hunt if I tried. Um, so to get what we got on film for that was pretty amazing. Uh, we've done, we've since done a, a public land kayak bow hunt here in Tennessee. Um, do, doing the public lotteries that are all drawn to TWRA. Uh, filmed that down at the Hiawassee Refuge down there Chattanooga um, then we did left wing and now this bear hunt will be the next one awesome well Damon uh, you know one thing I kind of would like to talk about and kind of maybe uh, jump onto mule deer a little bit is uh, you know yeah. tell us a little bit about just your mule deer hunting experience and kind of maybe what's a couple different states you've been able to hunt so far for mule deer so most of my mule deer experience is in Idaho or Wyoming okay um, and whether it's incidental tags you know like in idaho if you get an elk tag you can also hunt muleties with it um or whitetail for that matter as a non-resident um and then in wyoming is doing the whole draw system so um i've done both uh and pros and cons and that's mainly that's mainly been my my experience with them well well let's talk about that for a second when it comes to this tags in general okay that's one thing we've kind of, you know, talked about in each of these episodes to kind of relate with guys uh, that are down here that really aren't used to that tag system, whether it's a draw tag uh, or kind of, you know, they call over-the-counter, depending on, your, depending on where you're hunting. Uh, so explain a little bit of how Idaho works, whether you're going to hunt for elk and, you know, you can get the tag like through that or be able to hunt a uh, mule deer or whitetail with that tag, or if you actually get a deer tag in Idaho, how does that work in that state? So, Idaho is. I'm trying to fix a phone ringing. <laughs> <You're> uh, <good. laughs> is, so Idaho is uh, pretty. It's one of the. It's, it's it's just a great state for non-resident hunting um, because it's so much over the counter. You can get over the counter tags as non-resident for pretty much everything, um, and. Most of those tags work uh, where it's, you can hunt. They're good for any lesser priced animal Most in most cases. So, like, if I get an elk tag, and uh, I don't know where they stand right now, but say it's, it's around 700 bucks for a license and tag, um, I can use that tag on a mule deer or a whitetail. That's cool. um, so that's it, – it, it helps up your opportunities because a lot of times when you're in elk country, you're also in mule deer country or you're in whitetail country. So if you happen to see one or, you know, come across, you, your chances of, of filling that tag are good. Um, and then oftentimes you can just go buy a second tag if they still have leftovers, um, if you do do that. Um, so it's, and there's a lot of public land in Idaho. There's a lot of good places, different zones you can access and just have really good opportunities. Um, my experience in Wyoming is the, is the other side of it, and that's when you're putting in for the draws and putting in for tags. Um, and Wyoming's got a really nice Wyoming Fish and Game, Game and Fish department. It's got a really easy to 
Navigate website. It tells you the areas, the, the regions, um, you know, which seasons are open and when they open and close and which, which weapons, uh, drawing odds, you know, points, uh, the whole bit. And, and for a lot of people, you know, and most of your audience, I think, is, is you know, Eastern hunters right now. It's And I'm the same way. I'm still intimidated by the whole points and lotteries and drawing system. Uh, because it, we just don't live it here. You know, you kind of, yeah. you, you go buy a hunting <laughs> license and you, you get your, you, get, you know, you just know your limit and you go hunt. Um, whereas out west, it's, it's managed, the game isn't as plentiful and it's managed much differently by state. So you really got to have to navigate um, and learn kind of those ropes. Uh, and don't let it like not, motivates you you know because a lot of people can be very demotivating you see all these dates and numbers and drawing percentages and how long how many years you've got to wait and make, like that whatever i don't want to mess with it but um there are again there's opportunities where you don't have to you know there's 100 draw odds in certain zones um but you just got to realize that in those zones the opportunities are usually limited meaning either it's mostly private land, so like like where I where I went hunting in, in Wyoming, you know, I put in for the tag and I got I got I knew it was gonna I was gonna get drawn immediately, and that's largely because there's a lot of mule deer there, but it's mostly private land. So unless you have access, you're not gonna be able to hunt them. Um, so they have a lot of deer, but getting to them is the issue. The other places, there's just there might be not that many deer and not that many people putting in, so you get good draw odds. And like a lot of things with Western hunting, a lot of it's, you know, you got to set your expectations realistically. Uh, you have to, both in what you're looking to try to take and what you're capable of, of doing when it comes to getting into the backcountry or are you hunting a road system or, you know, what's your style going to be? I got you. So. Yeah. Um, yeah, so Wyoming, we've kind of harped on Wyoming a whole bunch in this series because yeah. that's where me and Jacob went and uh, hunted mule deer this past October. And uh, like you talked about in that state, you, you have to apply, but a lot of these areas are 100% draw odds, which the application date has already passed for Wyoming by the time this drops. Uh, it ends on May 31st every year. But you can still get leftover tags there. Uh, I'm not really that familiar with Idaho, though. I, I wasn't. I had no idea that in Idaho you could, you could also hunt mule deer and whitetails on an elk tag. That's, that's pretty cool. Because, I mean, I might be on an elk hunt, but if I see a big, giant whitetail, I'm, Absolutely. <laughs> my, my trigger finger's going to get pretty itchy. There's there's <laughs> no doubt that, you know, I've been on, I've been on elk hunts um, in Idaho, and uh, I've seen, you know, it's nearing last day, and you see even a, even a decent whitetail, and you, and you start having that debate in your head, do I really <laughs> want to eat this tag, or do I want to eat that whitetail, even though I've killed many whitetail? <laughs> yeah, that whitetail probably <laughs> uh, tastes better than this tag. <laughs> right it's it's so it's uh it's definitely a factor um and and again it's you're in, you're in country there where you might not be in the in, in trophy mule deer country but again if it's your first mule deer um and you see a nice little four by four or three by come walking by you know you're like well <laughs> i'll take him <laughs> do i want to set the bar or not I, i'm a i'm a firm believer in uh setting a bar uh, versus meaning some some level of success. I don't care if it's your first time hunting whitetail and you go out and you shoot a spike, great. 
that makes you happy. And then next time you can try to shoot something better. Um, and whether it's, whether it's how you grade the animal, um, uh, and I'm not a big fan of, of, of judging animal in that sense because animals vary in their quality by where they are. Um, but for a lot of people, you know, getting that first deer, I don't care what the species is. It's just, it's a milestone in life and that's a good thing. Um, and then, so I believe, you know, you, you set that bar and then know the ne- next time you go back, maybe you want to do better or uh, in regard to, uh, you know, how you have, Again, I don't want to say score. I hate scoring when it comes to animals. It's not a competition, but um, you know the quality or the age class of that animal, and then and then maybe it's the weapon choice. Maybe okay, I've done it with a gun. Now I want to do it with a bow. Or now I've done it with a compound. Now I want to do it with a trap bow. I think all of those things are healthy, healthy motivators. Um, and sometimes it's just getting that first one under your belt is a good thing. So uh, I like that's why I like the flexibility there in Idaho. Now, when it comes to just western mule deer in general, uh, and, and you know, when it comes to both Idaho and Wyoming, where you've had experience, uh, is there a benefit, in your opinion, uh, of hunting one or, or one of the other states, uh, or one of those two states uh, over the other? Uh, is there one reason that you would go to Wyoming more so than uh, Idaho, coming from you know an aspect of someone that's new going into this? You know, if it's someone new going in, they want to try to experience a mule deer hunt. They want to have similar experiences, me and Andrew, maybe yourself and some other guys, and just want to have success, but they want to have opportunity. You know, where would you lead somebody uh, with that aspect? I would steer them to Wyoming. Um, uh, you know, I'll tell you, Dad and I did a hunt last year. Neither of us, it was both our first, you know, like, we really want to come back with a mule deer. Uh, it was just dedicated. It was, it was a combo mule deer antelope hunt. Um, my dad and I had never hunted mule deer at all, so I wanted I wanted to take him somewhere with high odds, somewhere uh, he's not he's not as mobile as he once was. So I needed somewhere with decent access, um, where you know he's he's just not going to be packing in. I mean, he's in his seventies. He's, he's he's not going to be packing in with me in, in the places anymore. Um, so I needed somewhere with decent access, um, somewhere that we wanted to see. A, I wanted to be able to see a lot of deer. And just get used to, you know, if you're used to whitetail, looking at mule deer racks is just different. And, and just learning, you know, uh, the maturity stages and, and what, you know, an older one looks like versus a younger mule deer and different rack styles. And um, So I wanted somewhere we, we could learn that. We could, we could see a lot of different deer. Um, and then again, have the access and, and, and have good odds. There's... There's places in, in, in Idaho that have great odds, and there's places that there's not that many deer, um, or, or you got to really, really work to get to them. So, going to Wyoming for us, we went with an outfitter. Um, Wyoming's finest outfitter is WFO up near up near Sheridan, um, and it, again, it was a, it was a Region C, which is kind of northeast corner, um, and I, I highly recommend whether you're going somewhere new to fly fish or somewhere new to hunt. And it's obviously, it's a function of time and a function of money for a lot of people. Um, but if you can afford to go with an outfitter and some, and the level of, you know, the outfitter, what they provide dictates price, whether you're going in a lodge or you're staying in a hotel on your own and all your own food. And they're just getting you access basically to properties. Um, you can look at different ones, but, um, for that first, 
first time, you'll just learn so much more, and, and, and odds of having success are so much higher going with a, a quality outfitter. But I often recommend that. Um, that's how we did it. Um, so we went uh, to Region C, um, and uh, it's, it's a function of time too. You know, we had a, we had a week, uh, a little more than a week to, to do it. So if you have a if you had if you can have you know two weeks on your own, it's actually spend the first week doing nothing but scouting, and then the second week's the actual more hunting. Um, if you can get out there way in advance, doing some scouting too. But uh, you know. Whatever fits your budget and your time frame and your priorities, uh, you know, there's lots of options out there. Um, but we went to Region C, um, and most of the mule deer there, again, are in that. If you put in for that tag, you're going to draw it. Uh, and most of those deer are coming out of the mountains or coming down, and they're getting into some different ag fields. Um, so they're bedding high in, in different canyons, um, different slopes of the mountains, and they just come down in the evenings um, and feed and same thing you can kind of catch them low in the mornings before they head up to bed um, and lots of road scouting some hiking um, but that's kind of more the style there uh, and you could you can ground blind hunt down in the field edges um, or you can get up higher and longer shots um, and find them bedded they're nice white shiny faces in the sun um, in the sagebrush um, that's always fun to class them up that way so that was our style of hunting um, and it worked out good both of us got you know nice nice mule deer and had a really good experience um, so now as a matter of fact well I was gonna go say when, when where you're hunting in Wyoming uh, on that last hunt was that a archery or was that a firearm uh, tag firearm okay um, yeah. well one thing I'd like to talk to you about a little bit right now is you know, these uh, other episodes that we've already, you know, done on this series, we've talked to guys that kind of done the whole, you know, DIY, you know, public land aspect of it. And you're coming with it at a different aspect, which is something I kind of want to talk about is outfitting and going outfitted, uh, yeah. which, again, there's benefits of both both ways. You know, if you go DIY, you're going to save money. But if you go with the outfitter, your odds of success are so much higher. And also your odds of learning stuff from them, especially if they're a high-quality outfitter, you should be able to learn a lot of information from them and what to look for and also get a lot of questions answered while you're with them. But in your opinion, for someone going out there, you know, it really does come down to, you know, anyone that's coming from any part of the country, go hunt out west. You know, the two major factors is time and money. Uh, do they have the time to go out there and do they have the, you know, the funding, the finances to be able to make it happen? You know, there's benefits of doing both, whether DIY or going outfitted. But I want to talk about outfitted with you. In your opinion, I know you kind of touched on this earlier. How does how critical would it be for someone if they have the funds for it to do an outfitted hunt for their first hunt? How critical? How how critical, especially maybe uh, just for the overall success and maybe having just a, a a fun experience, especially if they did the research on the outfitter. I think I think in the long run, again, if if you have if you can afford it and you have you have the time. And, and the money, I think you will learn a lot. And hang on, I'm going to... You guys there? Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, I think you will learn a whole lot if you do that, going with an outfitter. I think, again, I, it's kind of like... Uh, first time you take your kid or your wife camping or something and if they don't have a 
good first experience, they're probably not going to want to do it again. So, you know, guiding, you know, when I was guiding backpacking and stuff in college, you know, it was always like, make just make sure my number one responsibility is make sure that whoever I'm taking out has a good time. Um, and so I kind of view it in that sense. If it's your first time, you know, if you go out and have a terrible experience and come home kind of disgruntled or frustrated, odds are you're not going to want to do it again. It's just kind of a basic rule of human life. <laughs> um, so I, I, the counter to that is you want to make sure you have a quality outfitter. Um, and that comes with its own set of risks. So you want to do your homework and, and call and, and talk and look at their photos and talk to other hunters who have been there, get a good reference list. And cause there are, there are very good outfitters out there. Um, so again, if, if you have the time, um, and often outfitters are, are, are critical if you have limited time, you know, with a week again, and not feeling rushed and not feeling like you're not going to be able to, to, to learn an area, figure out where the animals are. You know, an outfitter should already know where they are. They're ultimately their job is to put you on animals. Um, that's up to you to finish the deal. So uh, if you, a quality outfitter will, will know seasonally what the deer are doing because, you know, what, what those deer are doing early season is not what they're doing late season. Um, and what they're doing if, if weather moves in, if it's snowing versus hot. And all of those, those things can happen in the course of your week uh, in states like that. So they'll, they'll be able to help you navigate those hurdles faster in a, in a shorter time, time span um, and help you have a good experience and want to come back for more. And like you said, you can ask, uh, you know, good guides are open with information. They help you. They help you learn um, just so many things from, from the animal's behavior to um, again, the seasonality of, of what they're doing, um, to where they're feeding, where they're bedding, what to look for, when you're glassing one, how to judge it, all those things that a quality outfitter and guide will be able to help you learn uh, in a much shorter time span. Um, and often, if you're, if you're, again, if you're flying in, uh, you know, the driving versus flying thing is a big deal for a lot of people. Uh, you know, how do you, get, how do you get your meat and your trophy home? Um, uh, I'm a fan of, of driving um, for various reasons, but I've also flown. You know, I've I've put an antelope in, in the ride and flown flown it back. I've also driven out there and put uh, you know mule deer and antelope in Orions and driven them back. So I've, I've done both aspects with pros and cons to each, um, often a function of time and money. Um, so I, I I don't think it's it's a, I don't think it's critical in the sense of being necessary. Like if if you do it, you're just gonna wait. If you don't go there, you're not gonna waste your time. You're probably going to have a good time. You're probably going to learn something, but it's just the odds of having success and having a better first experience to me just go up with caveat being what they call the outfitter. Okay. And another question I have for you on uh, outfitting is for someone new getting into this, you know, say they've never been on an outfitted hunt. Uh, personally, I haven't had that experience yet. Uh, so that's why I'm asking is this for, for my own opinion is what are you looking for when you're when you're trying to find an outfitter because you know they all have you know most of them will all have a website or something they all have pictures of you yeah. know big deer they try to have pictures of big deer elk whatever what are you looking for in a in a outfitter uh, to make sure you're setting yourself up for success as in just that that personal relationship with that individual yeah well, a lot of it um, definitely word of mouth and I, I know a lot of people 
um, in the outdoor industry, hunting industry. So, you know, I definitely talk to people. Um, uh, but one of the factors, particularly in Wyoming, is, is, you know, we chose an outfitter based on the tag system and knowing it was almost more of just we needed like a trespass fee. And for those who know what a trespass fee is, it's a lot of private landowners out there. Even if you do draw that tag, um, some some private landowners will let you pay them essentially you know money to, to, to be on their land to hunt. Um, now, a lot of these outfitters out there will have leases, exclusive deals with the landowners. So um, they don't own the land that they're hunting, taking clients on, but they're guiding people on them. Um, and then they, and then they, they uh, the landowner tags. There's some incentives and tax things run by different Western states to encourage landowners to get people access. Um, so for us, it was okay. What zone can I can I put in for and be sure I'm going to go and get it on the calendar. Um, and then, okay, since it is that zone, I know it's going to be a lot of deer there that are going to be lightly hunted because of the restrictions. Um, and the outfitters only bringing so many clients in. So I think you want to look for outfitters that aren't, that don't bring a lot of clients, um, that are bringing, only pulling out a few bucks from different zones a year. Um, you know, outfitters that, again, will gladly give you those references unless you talk to people and, and find out, you know, uh, I tend to focus on, on outfitters that don't have, let's say, like, you know, five-star accommodations where you're eating, you know, you're back at the lodge every night at six and you're eating these grand meals. Um, I tend to focus on outfitters that simply have a, high, a lot of games. <laughs> and cause that's ultimately their job. But you, you, you will find hunters that will knock you know, they'll, oh, the accommodations, like, you know, we were in, you know, with plywood sided, you know, little, little cabins. We had, you know, propane heater, very, very basic. Um, but I'm okay with that. It's to me, that's, it's a step up from a tent yeah. <laughs> as far as, as far as convenience and ease. But I would rather be in that and around good people and around, uh, and having a lot of game than, getting, you know, steak and lobster every night and nice wine and but some people that's not that priority. Some people some people that is what they want and if they get a deer or not, they don't care. So it's 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 and that's okay too. It's up to them what their priority is. But I tend to I personally when I go out and if I'm gonna go with an outfitter, I'm focusing on an outfitter that is gonna know the land, know the animals and have access to a lot of them. Yeah, and that's something and, that me and Jacob have kind of looked into a little bit when we were getting our Wyoming tag because our third choice, which is what we expected to draw our third, our second or third choice, and in both of those areas, there were really good-looking spots that were private land. A lot of the unit was private land. So we kind of looked into a few outfitters in the area that would uh, kind of do what you're talking about where you basically pay them for rights to the land or, or you know, landowner trespass fees, stuff like that. We ended up not having to do that because we went to a different area with a lot more public access. But uh, I like how we brought that up because that's that's something you're going to run into a lot depending on what part of the West you're hunting because you'll have concentrations of public land out there where you'll have like a national forest or a lot of BLM. But then in some other units, and a lot of times these are units that are very easy to draw or have over-the-counter tags, uh, you'll, you'll get into an area that has limited public access, you know, checkerboarding, 
uh, you name it. There's just not like big giant blocks of public land that you can go hunt. And you run into that a lot with specifically antelope hunting, which we covered uh, last week. Guys, and your listeners have heard of, uh, you, know, like, you know, it's like Onyx Maps. Oh, yeah. um, you know, using using tools like that that really, really identify public versus private. You know, there's one of the factors, factors certainly is when you have a lot, a lot of private land and little chunks of public, little little chunks of public get hand, get hand, get hand where they're safe and when they're not safe. And they'll run on the private to get to get away, um, and you you have to juggle a lot of other hunters' pressures. You know, one of the nice things when you go in the outfitter is usually like we never had another hunter yeah. anywhere in the thousands of acres we were hunting, so yeah. you don't have to deal with those kind of constant. Um, I don't want to say intangibles, but they kind of are. You know, it's it's it, public land hunting. There's a lot of variables that you have to juggle, and one of them is other hunters. Um, and it's going to happen. You're going to be just about to, to close the deal, and then it gets blown up by somebody you never saw uh, being there. It's, it happens, uh, and it, it's okay that it happens, but um, it, can be, it, can, it, can, it can be frustrating at the same time. Um, so yeah. that is one of the factors of going with an outfitter is how many people they're bringing in and how they try to pack. Um, you know, there are outfitters that just try to move a lot of people through, um, and it's not a very personal experience. There are other ones that, are, again, are very limited in who they bring, um, and it, you're never going to have a conflict, and they'll spend a lot of time uh, helping you get your animal, and it, everybody has their own priorities and what they like and don't like, and that's up to them to, to decide. Yeah. So kind of getting back on the subject of just uh, mule deer in general and like what, what they do, how they are as animals, some of their behaviors, uh, are there any things that you noticed when you were out there, any specific features of where they were bedding or how they traveled? Because one thing that was kind of fascinating to us when we were out there is being in that open landscape and really seeing like a clear a clear example of how, how deer use topography, so saddles, benches, draws, and that it's like everything we've learned here was was like in bold out there you know it it really stood out how how the animals were using these benches and stuff and we'd sit there and we'd spot a bench or a saddle and we'd be like well let's sit here and glass this for an hour or two and sure enough every time you would see deer using it just like they're supposed to so is there anything like yeah. that that you kind of keyed in on in your experience well th- definitely um just the ability to glass out there versus in the east it's until you, you go do it you just don't realize how little visibility we have in the east yeah. <laughs> um yeah um, we just and people up from out west feel the same it's it's funny though like how do you know how do you how do you how do you glass and find you know where the game to hunt i'm like well here you don't you know here it's about find hunting the sign and then you hunt What's what left the sign? You have to be really in their in their habitat in their bedroom, especially hunting Appalachians. You know, there's no climbing the neighboring mountain to glass the other one. It doesn't happen. Yeah, you got to hunt so, them where they're gonna be, not where they are got, right now. Yeah, you got to be in it. Um, and out west, there's just so it's, it's not a lot of that. It's it's the game is the, the country is 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 big. Uh, the country here is big, but it's just different. You can see so much more. Um, you know, I don't have to find every individual trail and every individual scrape and rub and droppings. And, you know, you can you can just cover so much more with your eyes. Um, 
And so, yeah, it was, it was finding, definitely finding the slopes that catch on the cold, on the cold nights that catch the morning sun. Um, uh, but overall, you know, the mule deer, similarly to, I'll say, backcountry whitetails, um, you know, they have kind of their evening routine. They have their morning routine. Um, thermals definitely come into play, um, but they do, they do here as well. Um, but, you know, it's uh, they, they tend to descend um, kind of not the same path every night, but, you know, some an assortment of, of different draws um, and, and creek bottoms and uh, they'll use those uh, in the evenings, getting to feeding areas and then in the mornings, you know, right as the sun comes up, they tend to head right back up the other way um, and then they get up and they're going to bed and chew their cut and, and you know, uh, on the kind of south-facing slopes where they get the sun and, and then midday they tend to, you know, they, they might get off for a little wander and they, they're going to go bed up under a shade tree somewhere. So you can, you can watch all of that dynamic play out. Um, it's extremely hard to do that in the east and, and kind of watch a deer's behavior throughout the whole day. Um, it, you, know, you tend to get a little snippet of it uh, and that's yeah. it. So um, just seeing... You know, I've, I've, I've watched mule deer spar. It's pretty cool, you know, seeing the younger bucks come down um, and they're kind of, you know, ruts coming on and just like whitetail, they're still kind of running does and the big the big ones are just kind of doing their own thing and then they kind of, you know, they'll move in eventually when the does are actually ready. So you still see that kind of young and mature buck activity. Then you see the mature bucks being loners. Um, you know, you do get that, that, that bachelor group of, of, of mule deer activity going on where they're all... The bigger ones are kind of groups of threes, fours, and then they break up um, and become the individuals. Um, so it's this is one of the great things about Western hunting in general is, is being able to just see so much more um, and, and learning to think about how to use the terrain, uh, especially when it comes to archery hunting and how you're going to get close, how you're going to sneak up on them. You know, if you're going to get one bedded on a on a slope or on a bench. Um, you know, how to come in around them or above them, um, waiting for the wind to be right, getting above them to move down, um, uh, to get in the bow range without them seeing you, know, all those factors. Um, it's extremely difficult to do that in the East. It's, it's really fun to do that when you get on Western trips. Yeah, and I can relate with you on that, Damon. It's just the, the atmosphere hunting out there in such an open terrain it is, to me, it's it's – Personally, it's more fun. Uh, that's just my opinion. Some people might would, you know, go against me on that, but it, it, it was so much fun because you actually got to sit there glass. You got to find the animals, and you really got to watch them from a distance, trying to figure out what they're going to do and how to make a play on them. Uh, and it was, right. it was a lot more of that cat and mouse game, and not so much just sitting still like we're used to down here in the east. Uh, whether you know you're hunting a tree stand high off a ground blind, or even if you still hunt. I mean, you're, you're you're hoping you slip up on something else or something slips up on you. Where out there, you're you're to me, it feels like you're more control. Um, yeah, quite quite often it's just you just know the animals there. Mm-hmm. So much in the east, so much in the east is you're rolling the dice, like you said, hoping hoping it's going to be there, and you're playing. You know, ultimately, ultimately hunting is is a game of probability and statistics, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and out there, you know, once. And just like fishing or fly fishing or other things, you know, it's it's not so much 
getting the fish to eat is knowing where the fish is, even be able to get it to eat, and it's being able to get it to land it. Same thing out there is, okay, I gotta find the animal. Now I've seen the animal, now I gotta spend so much time just figuring out what I'm gonna do next. What's my move versus his move? You don't get those same kind of chess, just open back and forth interactions in the East you can get in the West. Um, uh, and that's just the nature of it. Like I said, once you're once you know that animal's there, even if you know you can't do anything for four hours until the wind changes, until the sun changes, or until he gets up from his bed, you at least know he's there. So you're very engaged for, I'll say you're engaged for much longer periods is a good way to put it. Yeah, and I, I agree with that. And it, to me, the time goes by faster. Even if you're seeing on a on a mountainside glassing, I mean, just because you're constantly looking at animals, you're looking for animals, I mean, to me, the time goes by quicker. But, um, you know, but on that on that note of hunting an area and really having your eyes on an animal and trying to make a play on it, how how crucial was Onyx for you while you were out there hunting when you were actually in the field? Uh, did you use it much when you were in the field trying to you know find different ways to get up on animals, or was that something that was kind of you put in the your back pocket at certain times to use? It's it's it depends again on those zones you're at and if you're alone if you're guided. You know, I actually I use, I use Onyx a ton here. Um, to be honest, where I am, there's there's a there's a lot of public um, that borders private. Um, so I use it a ton here. Uh, there's places out west that you know once you get into the wilderness areas, you, there's really no need to turn it on <laughs> um, because everything is is public and you know it. Um, but definitely there are those those, those times when when you're hunting those edges, um, and Randy will talk about this a lot, you know, hunting, getting on the edges where, you know, you want to make sure the animal you shoot doesn't run on the private, but there's a lot of animals to see sanctuary on private versus public, and knowing where those lines are, and knowing how close you can get, um, it's, an, it's an indispensable tool. Uh, it, you know, people say, you know, usually having to use modern phones and different things may not, you know, take some of the fun out of it, but when you're literally walking a line, um, in places um, that's not well marked, it's it's just an, an, an indispensable tool. Yeah, and I agree. But I also think of it as a different aspect. One reason we use Onyx a ton when we were out there was actually the uh, the the idea of once we got found an animal, you know, if we we're glassing at a mile or so, we'd get on we'd get on the app and then turn on the topo feature, topo overlay with the aerial photo, and figure out yeah. what was our best path to go to them, so we're not trying to kill ourselves. And then also just kind of figure out maybe on the map and what we're looking at, trying to find some different saddles and different benches that these animals might run. And it came into a huge play for us when we were up in Wyoming, uh, just to be able to find a certain bench uh, on the maps that uh, we could barely see in person until we got up over to it. And that's where we killed our deer at. Uh, so, so stuff like that's also huge. I mean, we use it back here in the east a lot too, you know, for – of course, for the public privately and uh, mapping system, but also just for that topo overlay to kind of figure out, you know, first of all, what's my best route to go up over this, this you know, this ridge without killing myself? And also, you know, how do you think the deer are going to work that area? But, uh, right, yeah, I use the, um, the, 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 the topo and the satellite. I mm-hmm. use the satellite a lot because mm-hmm. one thing the topo can't give you is, a veg- is the vegetation cover. Mm-hmm. So being able to pull up the satellite view and do all this offline if you know there you're going to be ahead of time. Um, be able to pull up that satellite view and be able to tell, oh, I got, you know, I got sage here, but I got trees here, so I can have cover if I'm moving, um, or so can they, or this is going to be wide open, I can't cross that because they're going to see me. Mm-hmm. It's also really helpful. 
Oh, yeah, for sure. And, again, I pretty much leave mine on uh, aerial topo overlay uh, where you can see both the lines yeah. on the aerial, and it's it's indispensable. I mean, it's unreal how much more confidence it gives you, especially it's like just stocking up on an animal. I mean, once you see it at a distance, especially if you're archery hunting, and try to figure out, you know, what drainage could I walk up to to get within close enough distance if it's all open, or, you know, just be able to use different terrain features. This is absolutely huge. But talking about onyx in general, uh, when it comes to scouting, when you're going out west hunting uh, for, for mule deer, again, this can you know go across you know different species as well. Uh, when you're scouting, other than finding you know your private public land wherever you're going to be hunting at, is there anything else you might would look at that you know when you look at the map like that should hold deer? Well, I, I'm more of a um, I look at it more of where where aren't roads? <laughs> if, I, <laughs> if I'm if I'm looking for areas to hunt um and i know i'm gonna be in a certain zone uh definitely i look at you know where where's it gonna be harder for other people to get to um just in general those tend to be gamey spots um and again you can have that big dichotomy there of mule deer of, of those ones that are used to going down in ag fields and, eat, and eating man-made you know planted fields um and the ones that are totally totally in the back country um but it's looking for uh, the draws and the terrain features that are in the ag zones, um, or if I'm away from that and I'm, at, I'm top of mountains, um, then it's okay. Where aren't roads going to be? Um, big, old, bigger open slopes. Uh, where can I? Where can, where can I? You know, get pulled the satellite. What's, what am I going to be able? To, if I go up this ridge, what can I glass across? Am I going to? You know, you can go hike one ridge and have a terrible view, or if you just go a quarter mile a different way and a, a different ridge, you can have an awesome view. Um, so I'm looking for water. Uh, I'm looking for cover. Um, it, it's kind of an, in general, if I'm going into an area blind, um, I, I say this a lot, and I've talked about this on other podcasts. There's, to me, there's kind of three rules um, to being a successful hunter or fisherman. And that's if you folk, if you if you make all of your decisions and uh, based on where an animal is sleeping, what an animal is eating, and who the animal is screwing. If, <laughs> if, if, if you make if you use those as kind of your that's your tripod of strategy, right? Mm-hmm. If if you factor those three things into all of your decision making and all of your tactics, generally you're gonna do pretty good. And there are times a year when, you know, one of those three is emphasized more than the other. You know, like during the rut, you focus on who they're screwing. Um, but, you know, other times <laughs> a year it's more betting and cover. Um, so, uh, but I don't care it, it, whether it's fish and spawning season versus, you know, uh, mouth season uh, um, versus, you know, dry season. What's, that's that's that factors in, um, you know, where they're they hiding under a bush or they're hiding in the open. Um, with deer and any, any 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 animal, it's they they need to eat, they need to drink, um, they need to they will hang out where they feel safe, um, and if they don't feel safe, they tend to use certain certain escape routes um, or cover types, and then there's always a magical time of year. I don't care what it is you're after, when they just their nose and their hormones take over and they act different and. Often to their detri- often to their detriment. So, um, if you factor those three those things in, you tend to do all right. 
Now, another topic I want to touch on right now is just hunting tactics uh, when you're going out there for mule deer. Uh, you know, talk about, you know, we've talked a little bit about just glassing in general and how that's, you know, very key out there, especially if you're hunting a state like Wyoming, which, you know, most places you're going to be hunting for mule deer is going to be pretty open. Sure, you'll have pockets of timber, but, uh, you know, glassing's huge. But when it comes to just hunting tactics in general and spotting and stalking, what is something, especially whether you're doing with archery equipment or with a firearm, what is something that uh, someone coming from the east or from the south, like where we are, going out there, what is something they need to know beforehand when they get out there to help them be successful uh, spotting stalking for animals? They need to, they need to one, know their, they need to know whatever, whatever weapon they're in style they're choosing, um, they need to know it well at, at range and at angles. There's very little that's going to happen flat out there. So, and, and, and distances are very deceptive. So, you know, it's extremely rare for me to shoot over 100 yards in the east. Uh, you know, most of my rifle shots are within bow range. Um, they're still within 50 yards. Um, and that's when I'm rifle hunting. Um, bow shots, you know... You, it's, it's going to be hard for you to get that 20 yarder. You know, you need to be practicing at 40, 60. Um, and even then, there, there's certainly guys now regularly shooting, you know, 80 or more. If you have the talent, go for it. But, um, you know, just having weapons set up so that you understand, um, you know, inclination, declination, and, and how to properly range when you're shooting, let's say, you know, 300 yards away up a, up a 20, 30 degree slope. You know, where do you have, need to have your range? You know, you're going to shoot under the animal um, um, or over the animal and, and knowing the, how to properly range for those angles um, and just learning to adjust your eyes. So that's 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 a biggie to me is, and you hear it a lot from the guides, um, you know, guys go out, go out and they'll buy a brand new rifle uh, and bring it out there and haven't have practiced with it anything more than 100 yards on a flat range. Um, and then they get frustrated when they're missing animals um, or making bad shots. So that's number one to me is that learning to shoot up, up and down um, and often at significant ranges. Okay, and I'll say I can definitely relate with that because in, Wy yeah, in, in Wyoming we ran into a situation where uh, me and Andrew literally was chasing down a mule deer from about 800 yards, he was down on a bench way below us. He couldn't see us, and we were trying to cut him off from a, uh, another another hunter. And uh, anyways, but lost my rangefinder in that run. And uh, uh -huh. right afterwards, Andrew was able to kill his buck, and we were packing his buck out. Of course, we didn't have he didn't have a rangefinder, and I lost mine. And uh, we walked up on a doe group with the buck that I was able to shoot. And uh, he he was down on a big draw, you know, very steep shot. And I thought, looking at him, and like you said, you know. Your your depiction of how far stuff is is totally screwed up when you go out there because you're used to seeing trees, you're used to seeing shrubbery, and really getting a good visual for how truly far something is. You go out there and it's just sage grass in some of these areas. Man, it all looks the same. It all looks the same distance. You see a deer out there, you're like, oh, that deer's, you know, he, he's at, you know, you might think he's at 400 yards and really he's at, you know, 350 yards or 200 yards, 250 yards, yeah. or vice versa. And, very deceptive. and that was my issue. I had this buck that was down this draw, and I was shooting like straight down on top of it almost. I thought he was at you know upper two hundreds to low three hundred yards. Okay, 
He's and, like 120, maybe. No, no, uh, no. He's farther than that. But anyways, no, I don't think he's farther. Than and, that. And, and Andrew doesn't need it. I don't, I don't need Andrew's opinion right now. <laughs> but uh, anyways, but yeah, and my gun was sighted in it for 200 yards on this trip. Uh, and you know, I held, you know, right on the top of his back, thinking that he was at you know a more significant distance than what he was, and shot over him twice. And uh, finally adjusted on the third shot, which I should have done the second shot, and uh, had it hold very, very low on the deer on his shoulder, and uh, you know was able to put him down. But uh, th- that that's huge. Like uh, we actually talked about that in a couple of these other episodes about knowing your equipment before you get out there and knowing it extremely well. Like you said, I mean that's huge. I mean if someone goes out there, like you said, buys a brand new rifle, only shot it off the bench at 150 yards, maybe 200 yards, but only off a bench. They're going to go out there and they're going to get in an awkward situation and they might not be able to pull that shot off just because they're not used to shooting that gun, you know, off a of, off a of backpack, uh, off tripods, off uh, trekking poles. Uh, yeah. You know, there's different. Even prone, prone laying down. Yep. You know, my guys yeah. don't practice laying prone, and out west you're often, you know, it's the most stable way to shoot is laying down prone, mm-hmm. propping your gun on your pack. So. Yeah, and Andrew knows all about that and laying on top of a cactus. Yeah, uh, when I shot mine, <laughs> I went prone and I laid on a cactus. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, that's that's not recommended technique. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it, it, he he was going a, away from a you know textbook uh, protocol, but, yeah. it, but I mean, he, don't, sit on, don't sit on rattlesnakes, don't lay on cactus. Yeah, and don't, don't sit. And don't, in, in my aspect, or also Andrew, don't sit on a cactus, and on Jacob's aspect, don't stick your hand in a cactus when you're looking for your binos. Um, yeah, we but, found but, all kinds of cactuses out there. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, it, but again, it's just part of the adventure. But yeah, I think that's huge. Again, like what you talked about, you know, when it comes to spot and stalking, it doesn't matter how close you get to the animal. If, if you're not comfortable with your gear and how you're using it, then it's, it's pointless. Um, but, you know, on another aspect of just hunting out there, is there anything that a hunter from the east or the southeast, anything that we do here that would transfer over in a positive light, uh, going hunting out west for any game at all. Um, that, that, there's, a, there's a lot. Uh, certainly, scent management. Um, you know, the you, you have. I don't care how good. It's, uh, and I, 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 I you know, I'm, I'm by, by no means fanatical in the way that I manage my scent. Um, a lot of whitetail guys certainly are. You know, with vacuum sealed clothes and you know and you know ozone containers and free wash and all this stuff um uh might give you a little bit of advantage here and there you know but i've always been one who believes you, know, you can't cover up smell your breath and i don't care where you are in your bow range it's a wind wrong you're busted i don't care how good your scent management is um uh, in most cases um so keeping the scent management factor in, in mind just with the wind um, being wind conscious, um, you know, I'm fanatically wind conscious when I'm hunting in the east, um, and certainly even more so in the west. I'm learning how wind and scent travels there um, with the thermals, uh, much more of a factor than they are in the east. But if you keep that in your mind and constantly, you know, using your scent checker, um, using your chalk and and checking, keeping tabs on the wind, you know, learning that, that nine o'clock shift and that five or six o'clock shift, um, and thinking, thinking longer distance where your scent's going, you know, where's it going to carry not 80 yards from you? Where's it going to be carried? Where's it going to carry 800 yards from you? And where's it going to pull and what's it going to set off? So keeping that in mind, um, so you said management, um, the technical practices that you use in the east, think about them in the west. Um, and think about them also in, in terms of where that wind's going to go. 
for hunters. Uh, there's times to move and there's times not to move. Um, so much of so much of eastern hunting is never move. Um, uh, and it's just what you're taught from when you're a real little kid, or you're turkey hunting, or you're whitetail hunting. You just you know, sit here, don't move. <laughs> and uh, I think everybody's dad who took them hunting has told them that. Um, and out there, there's times when you can't move, but there's times when you also have to move very fast and aggressively. Um, you know, particularly when you're elk hunting uh, um, and other other games. But you know, once you drop out of view of something. Often, with the distances, you're, the distances you're dealing with, you have to cover a lot of ground quickly. So, a lot of your decision making has to be okay. I, he can see me here, um, but I can sneak to this and then maybe out of his sight, and I can close 200 yards very fast or, or longer, or two miles. You know, I can I can shift around and, and cover this ground quickly once I'm out of their view. Um, so, knowing that, uh, learning that, learning how to move in the mountains. Um, uh, versus a tree stand, um, and that's one thing. Honestly, the tree stands—I got to bring that up because um, culturally, it's something that I find as somebody who travels a lot, and I—I I just tend to—I'll say I'm a studier of things in life and people. It's—it's um, it's always extremely entertaining to me how my Western friends cannot stand to be in a, to sit still in a tree stand. Like it's like it's like torture to them, like mm-hmm. more than an hour. Like the concept of going into a stand in the dark in the morning and coming out in the dark at night, like they just like put a bullet in my mouth now. Like I can never <laughs> do it. Um, uh, and so that's that's funny to me um, because there's so many opportunities in the West to get a tree stand on the places um, to be extremely lethal and deadly that. Like at, there's 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 spot a spot in Idaho where I knew this corridor, this creek wash that mule deer and whitetails use incredible whitetail. I've jumped them, fly fishing, you know, nice big 140 plus, you know, in velvet and, and just big 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 whitetails. Um, and you know, decent mule deer moving through there. And you know, I've thought, oh, you can't hunt them because you know they always jump and you run up, you know, come up on them. I'm like, well, why don't you just put a tree stand like you know on the trails going going into those bedding areas and just get them that way and like it's just the guys won't do it (laughs) so so that's just a funny cultural thing i sorry i kind of sidebarred there but um there are places certainly where you can get in with a ground blind or a tree stand you do see more ground blind use out west certainly at water holes but um getting some of these places and these draws and funnels with tree stands if because again a lot of these undisturbed mule deer can be pretty darn habitual um, extremely habitual, um, particularly when it, the, the ones at the ag fields um, and coming down and, and, and using maybe uh, a mountain to bed and coming down to feed on greens. Um, it's like clockwork almost. You know, every night they're going to be at this trail at 7 p.m. Yeah. So uh, thinking, thinking about that and, and uh, keeping that back here. If that's what you're comfortable and used to doing, you can use that. Use one of those tripods of where are they feeding and where are they bedding to your advantage. Um, it's it's not commonly done, but it can certainly be effective. That and that and over elk wallows. Yeah, but. that's something we definitely saw when we were glassing this big ag field. These deer did the same thing in the morning, in the afternoon, and the next morning, where they would go bed in this timber in the creek bottom, and then they'd come out in the exact same spots. And we were sitting yep. up there glassing, and we're like, man, if you if you put a stand right there, it'd be over. Yeah. 
You could you could stick one with a bow at twenty yards. Right. Yeah, and a lot of again, a lot of guys just they just don't think like that out there. So if if you have access or landowner permission to put a stand in, a lot of times you can offer to give them the stand too, trade them the stand as part of your, your kind of trespass fee. Um, uh, it certainly can be extremely effective. Now an- another topic uh, that I'd like to ask before we kind of wrap up this episode is. Uh, this is kind of a, a gear list. What what is a, in your opinion, a general gear list that someone needs to go hunt mule deer out west, whether they're going to go guided or unguided, and also is there any equipment that they might already be using back east that will transition over uh, to western hunting? That's a great question. Um, I always have a backpack. Um, I don't care if I'm doing a day hunt here or you know I'm doing a week-long backcountry hunt out west. I I just, I'm comfortable wearing a backpack. I'm uncomfortable if I don't have a backpack on. So I always have a backpack on me. Um, and so I'll kind of go through things, and most of, the, most of the time that's the same stuff. Whether I'm hunting here in Tennessee or I'm hunting out west, it's my pack is the same. Everything's stored in the same pockets. Um, and so do you want me to cover that in terms of like a day hunt or like a, like a multi-day hunt? Well, let's, I was gonna say let's talk a little bit about both. In your opinion, what yeah. first of all, what difference between a day hunt, say whether you're truck camping or again, you know, you're going with the outfitter and you're just going in one day, coming out the same day, or if you're gonna do a yeah. multi-day overnight? Yeah, let's talk about that. Okay, good. So, in my day pack, um, first of all, all of my the, the day packs that I that I use, um, uh, will can all turn into a game hauler as needed. So. You know, if I'm using like an XO 2000, or I'm using an Everly stock like the Just One, um, or I'm using Sitka's uh, um, kind of new subalpine bivy, you know, I've put animals in all of those, quartered and packed them out. Um, I hunt like that here in the east. Uh, I do the same thing out west. Um, always be prepared to haul animal out. So have a pack that can handle that. Um, so that's number one for me is having a pack that is light and fairly compact, but if I need to open it up and put an animal in it, I can do so. Um, I will always have, on that note, I will always have a pack of uh, game bags. Um, you know, I use ones from Pristine Ventures, Alaska game bags. Um, I always keep, you know, four quarter bags, uh, tenderloin bag, one extra bag, a couple gloves in, in that little orange kit. Um, or mesh stuff sack. That's it. always in my backpack. Um, I always have uh, water purification tablets, and uh, usually I'll have a um, some kind of a, a pump. I use MSR's trail shots, the one I carry now. Super light, um, works very fast. I can refill a bottle. Um, on that note, I always have a water bottle of some sort or bottles, uh, whether it's a hydration bladder or a bladder plus a bottle. Um, you don't realize in western altitude um, and heat how fast you dehydrate versus in the east where it tends to be more humid so uh, staying hydrated is key Um, I'm always uh, making sure I'm drinking enough Um, I'm looking at water sources not only for the animals um, standpoint but for my personal standpoint too Um, so I always know where I can get water Uh, usually I'll have couple like mountain ops um small kind of packs of, of uh you 
don't come on accidentally in your pack. And then the first light that comes on is always the red light, so not spook animals that much. Um, then I can cycle between you know LEDs or uh, kind of high beam like uh, LED, super bright. Um, that's always in my day lid. In my day lid, I always have a, a small ultralight Sea to Summit head net, um, just for bugs. If you are getting into black flies in Alaska or mosquitoes in the south, or I don't care, that, that head net is always in my backpack. It's, it's saved my sanity so many times. Um, that's a good one. That's a good one. Uh, a nice kit. You know, I usually have uh, uh, Havilon, and then I carry kind of my go-to all-around fairly light knife is called the, the buck the, the nickname is the pbs i think it's called the alpha cross lock um it's got uh they make a in, in a cabela's alaskan guide version and that's 30v steel a uh, number one's 440hc i think um but it's got just a nice a nice cut nice size cutting blade or a nice size little saw and gut hook um so I've used that saw. I've used that saw to cut down trees to make oars in Alaska when I've broken or lost oars rowing. Um, I've used that saw to cut skull caps off. I've used that saw to cut shooting lanes. Um, and then the knife is always enough for me to, to deal with an animal and get it out. Usually I'll carry an ultralight stone of some sort um, along with that in, the, in, the, in my lid of my day pack. Extra batteries. Um, and then a clothing, a clothing system appropriate. So I'll have, you know, usually I'll have uh, oh, all that stuff too, I guess, you know, usually depending on how and where I'm hunting, the range finder, um, usually my binos are on my chest anyway, and a chest carrier, if not, they're in my pack. Uh, sometimes I'll have, I always, I do a lot of riding photography, I'll have a camera system of some sort. It's usually a, usually a GoPro and something else, or just a GoPro. Um, and then uh, sometimes I'll have an ultralight tripod. Uh, I, I always have an ultralight, ultralight tripod that I use on the GoPro, but I can I can cut sticks and make my own tripods and mount that to the top of it. That's an ultralight kind of glassing tripod solution without having to carry a tripod. Um, or I'll do the same thing with trekking poles. Usually, depending on the distance and where I am, uh, often we'll, we'll be hunting with trekking poles. Um, and then in the pack, again, kind of back to, I'll have, you know, I'll have extra layers, uh, weather appropriate. Uh, usually it'll be an ultralight Cortex outer layer of some sort in there. If I know it's going to be dry, no risk at all of really bad weather coming in. Um, and it's just like a day hunt kind of scenario. Then maybe that'll be foregone, but I'll always have at least a, a warm coat um, and other layers to switch into as the weather changes and as the day goes from cold to hot back to cold um so those are trying to think other things that are kind of always in my pack i actually have a photo and a post of a meeting to put of my my backpack here in tennessee all strewn out on a boulder emptied um do all that thing right there is usually i have a carry a little ultralight thermo res z rest sitting pad um it's kind of like a uh, closed cell foam sleeping mat but just about the size of your butt really light weighs nothing um, you can help use that as an emergency splint if you have to um, uh, but it's kind of always goes with me just at the very least it keeps your butt dry if you're sitting in the muck um, yeah. but usually I'll put it on rocks for the thing just to help with sitting um, it also is nice in the winter use that under your butane stove so your 
butane doesn't get cold and your stove still works um, by not resting it on snow or ice. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, depending on, again, where it is, I'll always have an emergency kit of some sort that will have uh, at least matches some tinder. Um, I often keep just an emergency uh, uh, tarp system. If I have to somehow spend the night out, I always have that, a couple steaks, that tarp. Um, knowing if I, something happens and goes go wrong, I can, I can bunk up for the night. Um, and then if I'm then if I am doing backcountry trips though, then I'll have my whole sleep system. I'll have uh, you know I'll have a tent of some sort or a tarp system or not a sleeping bag, sleeping pad. Uh, and yeah, so that's kind of the rundown uh, for every hunt that I do. I keep an Excel file. Of, of everything for traveling to and from um, and then doing the hunt itself so I, I kind of keep and that helps me I keep all my kind of stuff organized and marked planos um, and it just helps me pack and, and not forget things uh, be able to do more things faster by not searching around for things so I'll, I'll make an Excel file of you know anticipated weather altitude um, species weapon um, and then you know, organize all my gear of, of camping gear, living gear, travel gear, hunting gear, um, uh, miscellaneous, you know, camera gear. And then for every trip, it gets updated um, and tweaked. And it's pretty simple. And I go on a new trip, uh, maybe it's the same state years later or, you know, na- a neighboring state or whatever. And I can just pull it up on my computer and what did I bring before? Okay, what's new? What's not? What am I tweaking? And, and go. So I do that. It also happened to help me once hugely in an insurance claim when we flipped a raft and lost a ton of gear. Um, the fact that I had that list of everything by manufacturer and what it was helped recover all that in an insurance claim. So it may seem a little uh, anal or whatever, but um, it, it's helped me more than once. Um, and it helps you learn, and it really helps you learn what you do and don't need on these trips. Yeah, and you know that I think that's really important because we, we decided that we took way too much gear when we went to Wyoming, and that's that's one thing that a lot of people don't realize is like, you know, first of all, food. You know, a lot of people overpack for food just because you don't eat that much when you're up there, especially if you're on animals. That's the last thing on your mind normally, at least in the middle of the day, is eat something. Uh, most of the time, I have to force myself to eat something, especially on a hunt. But you know, one thing I wanted to ask you was, uh, what what boots have you been using lately, and how are you liking them, and uh, you know, just, I'm just interested in boots. I'm, I'm kind of a boot fanatic sure. myself. Sure. So, I um, I used to do a lot of mountaineering and ice climbing, um, and I've always I have I have a I'm a very what I guess industry is technically called in the foot world a low volume foot, meaning I have a, a foot that's narrow, very narrow heel, and pretty shallow in depth, um, kind of otherwise known as just a skinny white guy foot. <laughs> uh, so, or um, or people refer to also as a European foot, um, and so I, I I definitely wear boots. Um, if you don't have comfortable boots, again, boots are um, all the marketing hype or whatever in, in the world can be what it can be. If it doesn't fit your foot good, you're gonna be miserable. So uh, when it comes to boots. Um, I'm very picky. Uh, once I've, I and I, I started wearing Scarpa boots um, many, many, many years ago because they just fit my foot well. Uh, you know, they're ice and 
ice climbing boots, uh, the rock shoes for rock climbing, just they tend to make a narrower last, um, and it, it fits my foot better. Um, so I have a couple different hiking boots from Scarpa um, that I use. They're making now some for QU, I think some some of their, they've kind of tweaked some of their mountaineering boots um, for QU. Uh, um, I just am using their regular, I think I have their R Evolution, and then I have their Kinesis Pro Gore-Tex kind of full last, stiff ran. That's what I use in my multi-day trip boot. And then um, I always wear the, the um, again, I think it's called the Revolution Gore-Tex or R Evolution Gore-Tex. Um, that's kind of my go-to use hiking, day hike, um, boot, um, gaiters. I'll, I'll often use gaiters depending on the conditions. Um, but my, my boots, I do use like, like rubber knee boots, um, often in the East. Um, but I, I really don't think they have much of a place in the West, uh, unless you're Japanese hunting somewhere really swampy. Um, but, uh, my, my go-to boots are those two from, from Scarpa. Okay, perfect. Um, and this kind of is like a, just a final question. Uh, what what is something? What's the number one thing you would recommend anyone looking to go on a mule deer hunt? What's the number one, especially from the south or the east? What's the number one piece of advice you would give them? Whew, do it. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. I um, like it. Yeah, just do it. Um, don't uh, you know? Don't get in, don't get intimidated by the tags or other things. Um, they're delicious animal uh, for one Uh, um, and they're a great species to to learn about um, and you know it'll it'll open your eyes to to, to western hunting a lot of people again you know it's you know elk hunters are like turkey hunters you know you're much more engaged with the animal and they cut people get fanatical but mule deer are they're beautiful Um, they live in, in in great places and it tastes really 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 good um, and so just you know do some homework ask questions there's a lot of hunters out there to help um, uh, uh, do, get online um, you know recognize your what you want for your for your first trip your your main goals is, is it see deer is come home with a you know 180 plus buck well that's not going to be so easy your first time i'm just going to say that um <laughs> they're not everywhere it's not like what you see on tv so uh you know recognize maybe this is going to be your first backcountry public land hunt you know recognize you know what you have experience doing and not doing um and go do it uh, again whether it's, it's okay to go with an outfit or it's okay to go on your own you gotta answer those questions for yourself um and just number one thing is just go do it you have a ball awesome well, I, I was gonna say we couldn't say it any better uh before we let you go uh andrew do you have any other question no man okay. i think that really covered it this was a good one uh i wish that we had a podcast like this when we were going on our trip <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, only other factor in shameless shameless product plug is you know if you're gonna drive it, have good coolers to get it back home. Uh, Amen. Um, we, uh, you know, you it's a three four days usually through heat to get it home. Even if you're out there in hunting cooler temps, driving it back east, it's usually gonna be traveling for a while and it's gonna be hot. You know, just have something. Um, have ours, have competitors. I don't care, but have something. Um, 
to take care of that meat and, and recognize if you're going to have enough volume, if you're only going to be able to de- to quarter it and bring it home versus debone it or have it processed there. Um, and I'm pretty tricky in my processing, but there are some excellent Western processors that I am willing to give my animals to, and that have done incredible jobs for me. There's one up in Dayton, Wyoming, um, I can highly recommend. Uh, but in fact, I'm eating, I'm thawing out antelope as we do this talk right now for dinner tonight from them that they did. But, awesome. uh, yeah, being able to, you know, have a plan ahead of time. If you're going to drive or you're going to fly, have a plan for getting that meat home. Absolutely. Yeah, we had just a bunch of, you know, Walmart coolers that <laughs> we had to stop and put ice in them every three. It was like three times. It was a 30-hour drive or 27-hour drive. We knocked out in 30 hours, and we had to put ice in there three separate times in that 30 hours. Uh, and they were inside of an enclosed trailer. So, yeah, definitely on next trip we Having go. to dump bloody water in yeah. the gas station parking yeah, lot. Yeah, d- definitely, oh, ne- yeah, definitely next time we will have uh, much better coolers. So that, that is, I think that's huge. But uh, once again, Damon, I appreciate you uh, coming on and making a little time for us today. And, uh, again, gr- this is an absolutely great episode. I think a lot of people are going to get a lot out of it and really get excited about one other species they can go out there and hunt uh, being mule deer. So we appreciate Damon, and uh, we'll stay in touch, okay? Thanks a lot. Appreciate it, guys. Look, last summer, y'all heard us talk a bunch about the Mobile Hunters Expo. It was an incredible event. A bunch of you guys came out to meet us. We got to talk to, I don't even know how many listeners. If you heard all that last year and you were like, dang, that sounded cool. I should have went to that. Here's your chance. You need to make it to this one. It's June 28th through June 30th in Dalton, Georgia. All right. Giving you a heads up here. So go ahead and mark it on your calendar. June 28th through June 30th, Dalton, Georgia is going to be the 2024 Mobile Hunters Expo. We're going to be there. A bunch of our past podcast guests are going to be there. There's going to be seminars. All of the mobile hunting companies are going to be there for you to try out gear before you buy it. It's like the one event of the year where all of the the like the mobile hunter ecosystem just kind of congregates in one place. And Chris and Josh and the guys have done an absolutely phenomenal job putting this thing together over the last couple years. And it keeps getting better every year. So like I said, make sure you come see us. We're going to have a gigantic stack of free stickers to give away to every listener that stops by the booth. And we're going to have merch there to purchase. We're going to be recording podcasts, shooting videos, all kinds of stuff. So like I said, don't miss it. You can head on over to the mobilehuntersexpo.com to look at show schedules and dates and go ahead and grab your tickets. So y'all go check it out at the mobilehuntersexpo.com.